This audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. Welcome to session 10 in our series on Luke Acts. We're going to be looking at a cluster of topics from, well, all throughout the middle portion of of the book of Luke. So uh, instead of following the flow of Luke, uh, we're going to kind of use this session to treat a number of different themes that are sort of interrelated. And in fact, those three themes that we're going to look at are the nature of the kingdom, the law of the kingdom, and the people of the kingdom. So you uh, may or may not have noticed that those three topics are essentially the same three topics outlined in, we talked about in session one, as the focus of this series, right? We're talking about the, the people of God, the Torah of God, and the end time plan of God, which includes this thing called the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Um, and as I suggested in session one, I believe that Luke Acts demonstrates radical continuity with the Tanakh in those three areas, with the Old Testament, right? So uh, traditionally, Luke has often been read as representing discontinuity on precisely those three areas. So that's what sort of prompted this new look at the book of, books of Luke and Acts. Um, and we're, we're looking at this as like a two volume work, right? Like Luke one and two sort of thing. <laughs> That's why I'm using the, the term Luke acts to refer to them. So today, um, uh, we're going to look at a couple things related to these three themes that are scattered throughout these chapters that we haven't addressed yet. And, um, yeah, let's dive in. So first we're going to talk about the nature of the kingdom. In the last session, we began to look more in-depth at the concept of the kingdom of God in Luke. I suggested that the kingdom in the apostolic scriptures or the New Testament is intricately connected with the prophecies in the Tanakh of the restoration of Israel and the Davidic monarchy. In other words, the kingdom of God is the messianic era. Right? It's the literal, physical, political kingdom in which Messiah reigns over a global Israelite empire from his capital in Jerusalem with all nations subject to his kingship. Uh, so this is the vision of the kingdom of God that we see in the prophets, right? And it, it is the true image of which the Roman Empire is a mere forgery. In that sense, the kingdom of God is a direct assault against Rome, which is Satan's kingdom. This is all by way of review. Uh, so this means that when Yeshua and the apostles go around preaching the kingdom of God, we're saying that the kingdom of God is at hand, the logical conclusion is that Yeshua is going to round up the troops, destroy Rome, gather Israel's exiles, and usher in the ultimate golden age of Israel. Right? That's kind of what you would expect if you heard that message and you were a Jew living in the first century. Uh, in short, the kingdom ties into Jewish nationalistic aspirations. 
Now this suggestion, what everything I've just said, would be scandalous to most Christians throughout the history of Christianity. Uh, for most of Christian history, the belief that Yeshua will return and literally reign for a thousand years was deemed uh, heresy. Uh, it was too Jewish, right? That's, that sounds like you're buying into Jewish nationalistic aspirations. Well, what I'm suggesting is that's precisely what this kingdom language would have meant in that day. Um, there, are, there is, however, one passage in Luke that is often interpreted in a way that might undermine this thesis. Um, take a look here at Luke 17, verses 20 to 21. It says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here, or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Um, that's quoting from the New King James Version, um, which I selected for a reason. Uh, as I'll explain in a moment, I think this is not the best way to translate this verse. For these verses, uh, but it helps make the point. And, and the point is that many people would interpret this as under undermining everything I have just said, right? Uh, Yeshua wasn't preaching a physical end-time kingdom. He was preaching a present spiritual kingdom that takes place in people's hearts. That's, that's one way of interpreting this passage. Uh, for example, uh, John Phillips puts it this way, he says, the religious establishment was looking for a visible, material, temporal, and worldly kingdom. They wanted a militant messiah, one who had smashed the power of Rome and found a new global empire with Jerusalem as its capital and them as its officers. Sounds kind of similar to what I was just saying, doesn't it? <laughs> with snobbish arrogance, they wanted to know when he was going to start moving in that direction. The Lord ignored their demand for a date and described instead the spiritual kingdom that he had come to build. So this, this is a typical way that this passage might be interpreted. There, there are other ways it's interpreted, but this is, this is one common that you, you might hear. You know, you say, uh, people will say, well, the kingdom that Yeshua brought was supposed to be a, a spiritual kingdom, right? Uh, an inner kingdom in, in people's hearts, not like a physical brick and mortar sort of kingdom. Um, and, you know, they might add the verse from John 1836, my kingdom is not of this world, Yeshua says in John 1836. Now, of course, that verse isn't in Luke Acts, but it's a verse people often point to as demonstration that God's kingdom is a spiritual or heavenly kingdom, not an earthly physical kingdom. So how do we reconcile this with what we've seen in Luke so far? Because we've seen some pretty strong political language used to describe this kingdom already. Um, so how do we reconcile that? Uh, there are two interrelated questions here. The first is, is the kingdom earthly or heavenly or both? And the second question is, is the kingdom present or future, or both? <laughs> All right, well, um, let's 
look at a couple, uh, some of the ways that this, this uh, phrase, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is used. So uh, we see both phrases, right? Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Well, if you look through the Bible, you'll find out that the phrase kingdom of heaven is found 32 times, but only in the book of Matthew. No other book of the Bible talks about the kingdom of heaven, which is interesting. The phrase kingdom of God is found 67 times, but only in the apostolic scriptures or the New Testament. It appears five times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, 32 times in Luke, twice in John, six times in Acts, and eight times in Paul's letters. Uh, of course, the word kingdom shows up a lot throughout the Bible, but that specific phrase, kingdom of God, um, is found in, only in those places. So one thing that I think confuses people is uh, this phrase, kingdom of heaven. To, you know, to some people, this implies a, a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, right? The very nature of the phrase itself seems to imply that. Well, if you as, as we see, it's only found in the book of Matthew. And if you look at each of these instances in which you have kingdom of heaven in Matthew, the other synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke, are going to have kingdom of God, right? So why does Matthew use kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God? Well, we're not entirely sure why, but one reason seems to be that his gospel is directed towards a more Jewish audience. And, of course, heaven is a uh, classic Jewish circumlocution for the divine name, right? The, the word heaven in that phrase, kingdom of heaven, is not describing the location of the kingdom. It's describing the king, who the king is in the kingdom. So it's not a kingdom located in heaven. It's a kingdom that belongs to God, right? That's the point of this phrase, kingdom of heaven. It's just two different ways of saying the same thing. It's not, it's not two different kingdoms, right? Uh, and scripture is, is consistent in portraying the kingdom as something that manifests itself on earth. Uh, of course, its origin is in heaven. So if we look at, at this, this uh, verse, uh, let's look at John 18, 36. So this is when... Uh, Pilate is interrogating Yeshua and, and he asks, you know, th these different questions. And, and Yeshua says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Here, Eutheos is the Jewish leaders, right? But my kingdom is not of this world. So literally, um, in Greek, it's ek to cause cosmu, like out of uh, this world, right? So it's, it's not, uh, this phrase is not saying that the kingdom doesn't manifest itself on earth. It's saying the kingdom does not originate in earthly political powers, right? And that's Yeshua's point, you know? If it were uh, a kingdom that originated from earthly political powers, then his subjects would come and fight on his behalf and set him free, right? But as it is, it, it's a kingdom that originates from heaven. Uh, it's not from this world, but it's coming to this world. I mean, that, that point should be 
should be clear, I think, from the rest of Scripture is that the goal is for God's kingdom to be manifest in this earth, right? I mean, what do we? What What's the Lord's prayer that we pray? Um, we have our Father who is in heaven, and then it, there are three uh, requests that follow right at the beginning of this prayer: May your name be sanctified, may your kingdom come, and may your will be done. And then it follows it up with this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, some interpreters suggest that this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, applies to all three requests, right? So God's name is sanctified in heaven by the angels, right? And uh, right, you look in uh, Isaiah 6, and the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. They, are perpe- they can't stop saying it. They're perpetually sanctifying God's name in the heavenlies. And so this prayer is that, We want to see God's name sanctified on earth, just as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God's God's dominion, his rulership is unquestioned in the heavenlies. It's obvious, it's blatant, but on earth, not everyone acknowledges it, right? It's It's not a universal thing on earth yet. And so we are praying for that day to come when his kingdom will be manifest on the earth as it is in heaven. And may your will be done, just, I mean, in the heavenlies, God commands the ministering angels and bam, they do his will, right? We want to see that on earth. We want to be that kind of people on earth where God says something and bam, we just go do it, right? Where we, where we have that kind of obedience and submission to God. And, and so, so, I mean, really these three go hand in hand, right? Um, but the point is that God's kingdom just because it originates in heaven does not mean that's its destination. I mean, you get to the end of the Bible and the new Jerusalem, uh, you know, there, God makes a new heaven and a new earth. Well, where is the new Jerusalem where all the people live? It's on the new earth. It's not in heaven, right? It's, it's, um, I think sometimes we are confused by this idea that our goal is to go fly off um, into the blue and, and then just stay there uh, in the, you know, in heaven forever, uh, God created the earth for us as humans to live in, and that's where his, his plan of salvation is played out on this earth. So anyway, that's a bit of a rabbit trail there. But uh, all that to say, I think if we want to answer this question, is the kingdom heavenly or earthly? Uh, the answer is, well, kind of both. I mean, it starts in heaven his that, that's where it's manifest all the time and has never been questioned but the goal is to see this manifested on earth god's rule manifested on earth right um the second question is um is the kingdom present or future and here uh, we have to take a closer look at all the ways that this this is used in uh, we'll, we'll limit it just to to luke acts uh, if you if you do a search for every single time the kingdom of God is mentioned in Luke Acts, and you you analyze each instance, asking the question: Is this talking about a future end time eschatological kingdom, or is this talking about a kingdom that Yeshua inaugurates in His ministry on Earth? Right. Um, you end up with. Uh, a list, uh, hopefully something like this. <laughs> Most of the time, it's ambiguous. You don't really know. You know, Yeshua says, uh, 
go preach the kingdom or it talks about proclaiming the kingdom. Well, is it proclaiming that there's a future eschatological kingdom that will come one day or is it proclaiming that uh, the kingdom has come now with Yeshua being on earth? Uh, well, most of the time you can't tell 100% for sure. There are, however, some times where it seems very much like Yeshua is describing a present reality that is manifested in his earthly ministry, right? The kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm here and the kingdom of God is here now. Uh, there are places where it, it sounds like that. But there are more places where the kingdom is described as something that has not yet come. Yeshua is talking about the kingdom and he's talking about something that's in the future that hasn't happened yet. Uh, and that, that happens more often, right? And then there are places where it seems to be a bit of both. <laughs> and uh, this is particularly Luke 13, 18 to 20, the parable of the, the mustard seed and the, the yeast or the leaven that we already looked at. To summarize, there are very few passages that depict the kingdom explicitly as already arrived and present in Yeshua's ministry versus the many passages that speak of the kingdom in explicit future or eschatological terms, right? The kingdom is something that will come at the end, that will come in the future. Um, that's a more prevalent theme throughout Luke and Acts. Uh, but we do see a bit of both, and, and there's, there's a tension going on between the two. And I think Luke 1.33 illustrates this tension when the angel Gabriel says to Mary that uh, um, Yeshua, the, the child who will be born, Yeshua will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Uh, this makes it sound like, th this passage, you know, it makes it sound like Yeshua is about to be born and he's going to grow up and become the king and he's going to sit on the throne of David and reign over the house of Jacob forever. It sounds like future and present are being combined into one, right? Yeshua's ministry ushers in the end times and the end time eternal kingdom starts right there. Of course, that didn't happen. I mean, we here we are 2,000 years later, and, and that has not taken place. It's, but we see the tension in hindsight in statements like this, where Yeshua came to inaugurate an end times kingdom, an eschatological sort of kingdom, but by all appearances, that never actually trans... Okay. So yeah, we, we've talked about this before, how there's this tension between what uh, the sort of kingdom that's being set up in the first two chapters of Luke and what we know from history, right? The fact that Yeshua died and rose again and ascended to heaven. And then, you know, within 40 years, the temple was destroyed. The Jewish people went into this great exile that's lasted for thousands of years. And, and there was not this great redemption and restoration of Israel like like you would have thought, right? So, uh, as we talked about, I think it was last time, I, I think the parables in Luke 13 uh, are a helpful key, right? The kingdom is like a mustard seed. 
something that starts out small but ends up growing big to encompass the whole world and be a global empire where the nations are taking refuge in it, the birds resting in the branches, right? That, you see that imagery from the book of Daniel. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that was hidden in a lump of flour, actually quite a big lump of flour if you look at uh, the Luke says three measures, but I forget whether it's Matthew or, or Mark. It's an extraordinary large amount of flour, like enough, enough to make bread to feed an army, pretty much. Uh, the point being that the kingdom has that kind of pervasive effect. It starts small and it starts hidden, but will eventually grow to be this, this global empire that has been promised. And, you know, so it's this sense of here now, but not yet, right? We get, we get uh, a foretaste of the kingdom in Yeshua's ministry, but there is something real, tangible, physical, and even political that is coming, and that is implied with this message of the kingdom. Right up until the very end of Acts, the apostles are still preaching the kingdom. And throughout Acts, there is not a single instance that, in my opinion, that would contradict this eschatological portrait right? They're still looking forward to that, that kingdom coming. All right, so, so with all that in mind, let's take a quick look again at, um, at this passage, Luke 17, 20 to 21. So uh, Yeshua says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Uh, Literally, it's not coming with observation, right? Uh, ways that can be observed is, is maybe a bit of a paraphrase of what it says. It's, it's, it's not coming with observation. It doesn't depend on your perception of it, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean it's going to be purely invisible. Uh, and I think that becomes clear in, in a few verses later. This last phrase here, the kingdom of God is, the New King James Version translates it, within you. Evasilia tu theu endos you mean esteem. It's, I mean, yeah, you could translate that literally, woodenly, as, as within you, uh, but it can also mean in your midst, right? Which is how the ESV translates it here. Uh, so there are a couple options for how we could understand that phrase. Uh, the kingdom of God is within you, in the midst of you. What is it, exactly does this mean? It could mean, first of all, that the kingdom of God is within your hearts, right? That's how people like John Phillips take this, uh, take these verses. Uh, of course, there's a couple reasons why I think we should discount that option. The first is that nowhere else in Luke Acts is the kingdom presented as merely a spiritual reality in the hearts of believers. Um, secondly, it would be strange for Yeshua to tell the Pharisees that the kingdom was already in their hearts, right? I mean, you, you might think he, he would say the kingdom of God is within us or within my disciples, but why would he say within you guys, in the Pharisees? So anyway, that's one reason why uh, I don't think that's a valid way to interpret that verse. Uh, number two, this is the second option for interpreting it. The future kingdom of God will suddenly appear in your midst. So this, this tries to take what Yeshua makes as a present tense statement and make it future, right? Um, 
when when the kingdom of God does come in the end of days, it'll happen so suddenly that like you're not going to be like seeing signs of it ahead of time. It'll just bam, it'll be there. It'll be in your midst. Um, I I don't think that quite works. It's certainly not a natural way of reading the Greek because uh, it's it's definitely present tense in the Greek. But that's some people have proposed that. Anyway, I don't I don't think that's very likely. Uh, third option is Yeshua is saying the kingdom of God is within your grasp, like it's attainable. And and this is more more likely, in my opinion. Uh, but I think uh, the most compelling suggestion is the fourth one, and that is the kingdom of God is present among you now. Right? That seems to be more the force of what Yeshua is saying here. Uh, so when Yeshua says, the kingdom of God is among you, he means, you know, that the king is here. He's, this is a veiled uh, announcement of who Yeshua is. He's, he's saying, you know, with, with my ministry here, like, this is the kingdom of God coming because this is the king is here, right? So, um, yeah, this doesn't deny a literal future coming of the kingdom. Um, when, like I said, when Yeshua says it doesn't come with, literally in Greek, it's just with observation, doesn't come, uh, it doesn't depend on your perception. But if you look at the verses that follow, Yeshua does affirm the kingdom is an eschatological reality, right? Uh, he says the days will are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Um, and, you know, they're talking about the Son of Man in his day. So right away, he switches to talking about something that is end times. All right, uh, someone has their hand up there. Uh, Dylan? Yeah, um, just a question about that phrase, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Is that... Uh, like a parallel back to Exodus 25 when it's talking about, uh, like God says, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Is, there um, a, is that like a similar phrase? It, it could be. Uh, I actually was uh, thought of that verse. Uh, do you have the reference there? Uh, yeah, Exodus 25 verse 8. Take a quick look at how it's translated in the Septuagint. So, um, yeah, in Hebrew, uh, and they will make for me a mikdash, a sanctuary, v'shachanti uh, betocham, and I will dwell. Uh, you could translate that as within them or in the midst of them, right? Um, in Greek, uh, it's and. Um, you will make for me uh, a sanctuary and um, this is more like I will appear in you. So it's, it's uh, actually a very different way that the, the Greek is uh, paraphrasing that a bit. Um, interesting. I'm sure there's uh, a cool rabbit trail we could go down there if we, <laughs> if we tried, but... Uh, just the, based on the Greek translation alone, uh, it's not a direct uh, link to Luke. Like if Luke is not 
alluding to the Septuagint in that passage, at least not the Septuagint as we have it here, uh, but there may be other places in the Septuagint that he's alluding to. So anyway, that's uh, an interesting thought. But yeah, one similarity between the two passages is that uh, in, in Greek, it can be translated as either within you or in the midst of you. In this passage in Hebrew, it can be translated the same two ways, in their midst or within them. All right, let's move on here. I just want to, uh, I guess, come back on this talking about the kingdom. It strikes me that uh, throughout the millennia, Christianity has, has by and large, for the majority of Christians at least, or the, the mainstream orthodox um, forms of Christianity, have tried to, in my opinion, have tried to neuter the message of the kingdom by making it a purely spiritual message, by stripping it of all its Jewish Jewishness and uh, any physical or political ramifications. Uh, and but but this this the the kingdom of God, you know, it's all about the restoration of the Israelite monarchy. I mean, this is precisely what the hope and longing of the entire Tanakh is about, right? It's this looking forward to, at least um, from the point where uh, the exile, uh, the Babylonian exile kicked in and the Davidic uh, dynasty was cut short and, and the Davidic, uh, David's dynasty came to, for all intents and purposes, came to an end there. Since then, the, this issue of God's faithfulness to his promise to David has been a key uh, point of uh, a crisis of faith right, for, for Israel. How is God going to be faithful when he's allowed all this to happen? And it strikes me how even today in, in some of the classes I, I've taken at seminary, there's this, this effort to, um, to downplay all that, to minimize the, the value of, uh, you know, even denigrating the very notion of Davidic kingship and trying to interpret the Old Testament in a way to show that God never really wanted that and, and that uh, the whole point of Jesus coming was to completely reinterpret all those uh, Old Testament misinterpretations and things like that. And it just, I, I don't get how people can come to that conclusion, right? It's, it seems to me from everything we're reading in Luke and Acts that it is exactly following, following the expectations that we see in the Tanakh and the aspirations of the Jewish people. Anyway, we'll continue to hash that out as we go. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is the law of the kingdom, the Torah, right? Let's take a look at, um, we're going to read Luke 16, verses 16 to 17. Um, would someone be willing to read those verses? I can read them. Sure, that'd be great. 16, verses 16 to 17. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. 
and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Great, thank you. All right, so this is a, an interesting passage. Um, Christian interpreters often take verse 16 as implying that the Torah and prophets cease to be in operation once John the Baptist arrives, right? So we've got the law and the prophets were until John. Uh, some translations will add a clarifying statement in there, like the law and the prophets were in force until John or something like that. But literally in Greek, it just has uh, the law and the prophets until John. It doesn't even say whether it's past tense or they were until John, they are until John, they, you know, right? It's, it's, it's just, it's a verbless clause. The law and the prophets until John. In Greek, you can do that. In English, it doesn't work so well. Uh, and since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So you've got, you know, the old dispensation that's characterized by law and prophets, and then John comes and bam, a new dispensation kicks in known as the kingdom of God. This is one way it's interpreted. Uh, if you look at um, this, 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 uh, these verses are paralleled in Matthew 11, 12, and 13. Uh, there's some interesting similarities and differences. In Matthew, it says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So, whereas in Luke, the, the verb is, there's no verb there, right? So the law and the prophets blank until John. Well, Matthew adds in the verb prophesied. Uh, comparing it with Matthew, it's, it, it, in my opinion, it's clear that Yeshua's point is the law and the prophets predicted and anticipated what has taken place since the days of John the Baptist. And that is precisely the advance of the kingdom. Yeshua's ministry, the preaching of the kingdom, these sorts of things, right? Um, this is everything that the law and the prophets have been pointing to. That doesn't mean that the law and the prophets end once that stuff comes in. Uh, I, I think that should be clear, but just in case it's not clear, Luke makes it clear for us in the next verse when he says, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So just in case we didn't, uh, in case we misunderstood the verse before Luke clarifies it for us and somehow uh, a lot of a lot of us still don't uh, take the hint but <laughs> um, yeah so the point is that this uh, when when he says this this is not meant to signal the obsolescence of Torah and the net effect of all this is Yeshua affirms the ongoing validity of Torah and of course verse 17 is paralleled in Matthew 5 verse 18 for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished not a jot or tittle right um, this Greek word uh, kerean it's like a, a, a serif or a, a horn a projection on a letter uh, so in in Hebrew, this would be the little ornamental uh, serifs and stuff, the tittles, right? Okay, so 
here it, it seems very clear uh, that Yeshua is affirming the ongoing validity of Torah, right? Uh, a possible objection to that is the Sabbath controversies that we encounter. So there are three places in Luke where Yeshua has a run-in with uh, religious authorities over Sabbath practice. Let's take a quick look at those verses. So we've got Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, Luke 13, 10 to 17, and Luke 14, 1 to 16. I'll do a quick run through these verses here. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Yeshua answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Yeshua said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all at them all, he said to them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Yeshua. Uh, I'll just stop there on this passage so far. Uh, so we've got in Luke 6, uh, two stories, two Sabbath controversies back to back, right? First of all, the disciples are plucking uh, heads of grain on the Sabbath and eating them. And in the second one, Yeshua heals a man on the Sabbath. And in both cases, it's the Pharisees that confront him and say, you know, why are you doing this? And it ends in verse 11, where it says, they were filled with fury. Uh, uh, I would actually beg to differ with this translation. Uh, there, there is some div division among scholars onto what exactly this, this term means here. But the Greek word is anuas. Uh, most of the time, the, the Greek word uh, nous is, is mind. And the a prefix at the beginning means without. So uh, it, or it can also mean knowledge, right? So the idea is that they were, they didn't understand, right? I think that's a better way of, of, of taking this verse. Um, they didn't understand and they discussed with one another what they might do you know, this has what they might do to Jesus, but you could also translate it what they might do with Jesus. In other words, uh, it's significant that throughout Luke, although the Pharisees aren't exactly good guys, they're, they're not exactly always bad guys either, right? Luke uh, is very clear about the fact that the Pharisees were not involved in condemning Yeshua to death. And throughout Luke Acts, as we talked about in a previous session, we see the Pharisees at times even uh, defending Yeshua and the apostles in the book of Acts. Uh, so this, uh, the idea that the Pharisees were filled with fury and wanted to harm Yeshua, I don't think that's what, Yeshua, that, that's what Luke is trying to communicate here. In the other gospels that, where they parallel this point, that is what they're trying to communicate more so, um, but in Luke, that's not 
what we see here. So just a technical point on the translation there. Um, let's jump to chapter 13, verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Yeshua saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Um, and the ruler of the synagogue is indignant because he healed on the Sabbath. So let's jump down to verse 15. Uh, then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger or lead it and lead it away to water? Uh, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And then the last passage is Luke 14, 1 to 6. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, which that's a prestigious uh, dinner invitation for Yeshua to receive. That means he uh, rubbed shoulders with some prominent religious authorities from the party of the Pharisees. Uh, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Yeshua responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to those things, to these things. A lot of times Christians assume based on stories like these that Yeshua disregarded the Sabbath that he was a Sabbath breaker, that he did not follow the commandment to honor the Sabbath, to rest on the Sabbath. But there's a couple important things to note about these occurrences. In these passages, note that all four scenarios deal with the alleviation of human suffering. So in the first one, we've got uh, dealing with hunger. The other three instances are dealing with healing on the Sabbath, right? So the disciples are hungry, they're uh, getting food and eating it, um, and Yeshua is defending, in, in all four cases, Yeshua defends the alleviation of human suffering on the Sabbath. It's not, this is not just um, disregarding the Sabbath for this, you know, for kicks, right? It doesn't say that Yeshua went and did his carpentry work on the Sabbath and the Pharisees were upset at him for doing that. You know, in every case, it has to do with the alleviation of human suffering. Uh, maybe as messianics, we can ask the question, does this, should, does this give us a model for our own halakha? Uh, does this give us license to be less strict about the Sabbath in ways that help alleviate human suffering? And I think the answer is yes, but with a bit of caution here, uh, because it's easy to <laughs> uh, fudge the definition of what qualifies in instances like that and what doesn't, right? Uh, if I feel like I'm suffering because I want to go shopping on the Sabbath, does that mean I get to set aside my the scruples of not buying? buying or selling on the Sabbath and go shopping? I don't, I don't think so. 
right? The point is in, in these situations, Yeshua's presence on earth and the proximity of the kingdom made the alleviation of human suffering especially important. This is, this is especially the case with hunger. Uh, if you notice uh, in just before that passage where the disciples are going through the grain fields and rubbing out heads of grain, uh, just before that, Yeshua is questioned by the Pharisees about fasting. And Yeshua makes this statement that it's, it doesn't make sense for the friends of the bridegroom to fast while the bridegroom is with them, right? So there's something about Yeshua's presence with his disciples that makes it inappropriate for them to experience uh, fasting and, and hunger, right? And so something about Yeshua being there, and that's the argument Yeshua brings up, right, is he talks about David and his men, and then he concludes, and the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he's bringing his own authority into that halakhic uh, decision. Uh, that's not something that we can exactly replicate in our day, right? We don't have that exact same sort of circumstance going on today. Uh, also, healing. Healing is, is something that comes from God's power that's divine, right? This is not... Um, the fact that Yeshua healed on the Sabbath might give us license to heal on the Sabbath, except that healing comes from God. It's not something I can just go and arbitrarily do on myself. God's the one that heals and he can heal on the Sabbath, right? Um, and obviously there is nothing wrong with going to a doctor or getting medication or whatever need be on the Sabbath. I think that principle could apply, but there's a sense in which these cases are special, right? The, these cases are unique to Yeshua's ministry and don't offer us a precedent for dismissing the Sabbath whenever we feel like it. Um, so yeah, things to think about. All right, another point is that in each of these cases, Yeshua responds with legal argumentation rather than a dismissal of Torah. Right. If, the, if, if Yeshua's purpose was to demonstrate that the Sabbath laws were obsolete and we shouldn't bother keeping them, you would expect that when the Pharisees confront them on it, confront Yeshua on it, that he would just say, oh, well, those those don't apply anymore. John the Baptist came and now the law and the prophets don't apply. That, haven't you read that? <laughs> uh, so, you know, obviously the fact that he brings up a legal argument to defend his actions uh, demonstrates that he's. Yeshua's intent is to follow Torah, and he sees what he is doing as fully within what the Torah allows, right? A third point, and for me, I think this is very decisive. No one accuses Yeshua of breaking the Sabbath at his trial, right? Like you think of all the, all the false accusations that they were bringing to try and get Yeshua condemned to death, and no one bothers to bring up uh, oh, well, he broke the Sabbath. <laughs> that uh, seems to me to be quite telling. And finally, we don't see any Sabbath controversies in the book of Acts. Right? If, if Yeshua's point in doing these things was to tell his followers that it's okay to break the Sabbath, how come they never do that in the book of Acts? Right? Uh, and in fact, we see... Uh, throughout the from at the end of the gospel of luke and into the book of acts very strict observance of the sabbath we'll come across that when we get to it 
so for these reasons, I think uh, it is safe to conclude that Yeshua's Sabbath controversies are not about whether or not to keep Torah. They're about the application of Torah, and they assume that we are supposed to follow Torah. Okay, we'll leave it at that for now. Uh, I do want to look a bit at the people of the kingdom. So I'm not sure if we'll get to look at all of these passages, but let's start with the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. <laughs> this is uh, a story we skipped over. Yeshua begins, or sorry, the, the passage begins, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the Torah? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. There's a couple interesting things about this. Uh, first of all, this is the first of, of two, at least two times in Luke. Uh, we'll look at a, a third that's also closely related. But this is the first time where someone comes to ask him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And every time, Yeshua's answer is the same. He points them back to Torah, which is significant, right? And he says, what is written in the Torah? How do you read it? And the guy answers, you shall love the Lord your God. With, he answers with the two great commandments, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. In Matthew and Mark, both Matthew and Mark have those two commandments uh, as prominent, but uh, both of them place, that, place this in a different context, where uh, in the final week of Yeshua's passion while he's teaching in the temple in Jerusalem, they come up and ask Yeshua, and Yeshua answers that these are the two greatest commandments. Whereas in Luke, uh, Luke places those commandments in the mouth of this lawyer who's asking Yeshua how he can inherit eternal life, right? And Yeshua answers, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Interesting uh, response, given that uh, we would expect Yeshua to say, uh, well, that's not how you can inherit eternal life. You have to accept me into your heart and say the sinner's prayer and then you will live. <laughs> um, uh, we won't get into that right now. Anyway, but it goes on. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Yeshua, and who is my neighbor? Which prompts Yeshua to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Uh, so we all know the story. The guy is walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, which, if you know, Jerusalem is in, you know, the the ridge of the mountain region in Judea, and Jericho is way down at the Jordan River, close to the Dead Sea, so it's below sea level. Uh, so this is a very steep descent going down uh, through treacherous wilderness terrain, uh, quite arid territory. And a uh, great place for robbers to jump out and rob you, and whatever else it is that robbers do. Uh, and that's exactly what happens in the story. And then we have these characters that come by, uh, first a priest, then a Levite. And, you know, of course, if you're familiar with uh, Jewish conception of 
uh, tribal identity and uh, worldview. Uh, and if you've ever read rabbinic literature, uh, you'll know that you see you see a, a priest and a Levite, and what's the next character? It's it's an Israelite, right? That's that's the way it goes. It's like two men walk into a bar, third one ducked. <laughs> you know, you're expecting something, right? You're, you're expecting when you see a priest and a Levite that the next person is going to be an Israelite because those are the three categories of of Israelites. Those are the three categories of Jews uh, in the first century. Um, but it's not. It's not an Israelite. It's a Samaritan, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And, of course, the first two just pass the guy by, but the Samaritan actually helps him. And uh, then Yeshua ends by saying, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he, and he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Yeshua said to him, you go and do likewise. All right, so what is the point of this story? I know we're all so familiar with this, uh, and you know we've a lot of us heard it growing up in Sunday school or whatever, right? It's it's uh, one of the most popular parables out there, and uh, the Sunday school answer as to what's the moral of the story? Well, the moral of the story is be a good Samaritan. If you see someone beat up on the side of the road, you should put them on your donkey and take them to the nearest inn, right? All of us have experienced that, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, Yeshua's point is more than simply trying to tell us to be kind to other people. Um, you know, his point is not just, you should be a Samaritan, not a priest or a Levite. That's, that's, not, that's not the point here. Uh, if the point were, and, and, and the point is not even just, you should be kind to people who are normally your enemies, right? If you live in Fliberal Lou, then you should be kind to people from Jibberty Lot or whatever the other town is called, even if they hate you, right? Um, if, the, if the point were simply about being kind to enemies, why not switch roles and have the Samaritan man in need of help? Or better yet, why not, instead of making it a Samaritan, why not make it a Roman? Right? If, that's, if this is really the point of the story, it's, it seems like there's something a little bit backwards here, right? Well, I want to suggest, uh, suggest the point here is about Israelite status. I mean, that's the question that the, the lawyer begins with, and that's the question that Yeshua addresses in this story. He, the lawyer says, who is my neighbor? The point is, to whom does this commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, apply because in the context of the Torah you would assume that your neighbor is your fellow Israelite right uh, so so but it's not exactly clear right what exactly are the parameters for whom I am obligated to love well there's four characters in this story three of them are identified by tribe or ethnicity right the priest the Levite and the Samaritan but the fourth one is not identified. Uh, the, the man who is assaulted in the story, his identity is unknown. Is he, is he a priest? Is he a Levite? Is he an Israel? Is he a Gentile? Like, we don't know. We don't know what the status is of this guy. 
It's unknown. And that's precisely the point. As the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan are walking by, they don't know who this guy is. They don't know if he's an Israelite, if he's a Jew, if he's a Gentile. They don't know, right? And who's the guy that responds with kindness to him? It's, it's not the guy whose Israelite identity is secure. It's a Samaritan who uh, a lot of Jews did not regard as. So the Samaritan status is questionable, right? Of the three people who are identified, he's the one that a lot of Jews would not even consider a Jew. Well, it was, it was, it was a debated issue in the first century. Um, Josephus seems to regard the Samaritans as less than Jewish. Uh, other writers seem to regard them as Jewish. Josephus claims these are the descendants of the people that came, that, that are talked about in first, uh, Second Kings chapter 17, people that the Assyrians brought over, but that's not, that's not known for certain. There are other theories about who the Samaritans are and where they came from. Anyway, point is that they're, they're a rival group to the Jews and they're, they had questionable uh, status, right? Uh, so if a Samaritan acted like a true Israelite, going above and beyond the call of duty, in his zeal for Torah, how much more should we, right? How much more should this lawyer? Um, so the story focuses on not making any justification for failing to love someone by categorizing them as not one's neighbor, right? Categorizing them as other, uh, which uh, this is what was standing in the way of the the lawyer doing that and living right so these two commandments loving god loving your neighbor he needed to have a broader understanding of who his neighbor was and of course um, this touches on our theme of who are the people of god in luke acts because uh the issue is on defining who's within the scope of uh, our, our Torah observance, basically. Who is in, who am I obligated to, to love? And Yeshua says we need to expand our horizons in that regard. Okay. We're going to have to stop there. But are there any uh, thoughts or questions on any of the, any of that? or on other stuff from Luke Acts. So thanks so much, everyone, for coming out tonight. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben, yes. <laughs> Sorry for the interruptions with uh, getting cut off there. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.